You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For the Now media production. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Null and Void sports podcast. As ever, we spoil you with yet another brilliant guest tonight. Also, you'll hear a selection of your responses after a weekend full of more controversy than normal. My name is Tony Grundy. And mine's Andy Callahan. Where do we start, Andy? Where do we start? What, what about cricket? <sighs> well, I think we uh, we summed up how we thought it would go when we did when I did get a grip last week. Even I didn't think it'd be that bad. England <laughs> were absolutely blown away by Australia. I mean, why, oh why, oh why would you choose to bat first? in heavy, cloudy conditions that are perfect for seam bowlers and swing bowlers. And then on top of that, in probably some of the most English conditions that they're ever going to face at the Gabatoir, um, you leave out James Anderson and Stuart Broad, who have got 1,100 wickets between them, most of which have been taken in similar conditions with heavy cloud and a green wicket. That's the greenest I've ever seen a Gabba pitch in all my time following cricket. You know, amazingly, Root is still saying afterwards, I saw an article where he was saying, we were right to bat first. I mean, the sheer arrogance of that statement and stupidity uh, as well, I can't believe. Um, I mean, you'd have been right to bat first if you actually had a batting lineup that was a uh... Not built on uh, balsa wood and, and tinderbox batting. I mean, it was just, and even it's the hope that kills you. On day three, <laughs> there was that little bit, the, the fight back, Root and Malan both got, you know, past 50 and, you know, 70, 80 each. And I was at the same to Billy, our uh, uh, renowned football correspondent, but he loves his cricket. So I was saying, just maybe, just <laughs> maybe. And he, he just yeah. came back and said, They'll both be out for less than 100 tomorrow morning and we'll be all out by tea. And I think even saying we'll be all out by tea was optimistic. Um, so, yeah, it's with England, it's the usual thing. Abject on day one, a little bit of a fight back and they just get our hopes up and then just let us down again. But we keep going back. I don't know whether it's like Stockholm Syndrome. We just keep going back for more and more and more. Yeah, well, at that point, for more and more and more, let's stop because it's depressing. <laughs> oh, well, and then if you want to mention, and let me do it this way, F1, let's just give you the facts. Red Bull won. Mercedes lost. Put simply, that's what happened. But so many of you have commented uh, to give us our opinions on the topic, that we're going to cover that later after our first guest in the detail that it actually needs. I promise. I promise we'll do that. Yeah, let's stop on that one. Otherwise, we'll get carried away with it. Those were the facts. I sound like Rafa Benitez now, but another fact. <laughs> another fact. UEFA on Monday held a draw for the last 16 of the Champions League, right? That's what they did. And in doing that, well, I'm going to save it for Get a Grip to give you my opinion, but you can get an idea of how I feel about it, how strongly I feel about it. 
because that was the most shambolic thing I've seen for quite some time. So Get a Grip's going to get that. Yeah. I mean, we, we were spoilt for choice for Get a Grip this week, Tony, because also, yeah. as well as the F1, as well as the cricket, as well as the Champions League, you could be then looking at the, yet again, we're seeing football matches being called off because of COVID. And I know we've we've banged this drum long and loud and to the point yeah. where many listeners must be fed up of hearing us talking about, you know, the low levels of vaccination in professional footballers. I see now that today the Premier League have said that before going into training every day, now players are going to have to do a lateral flow test and test negative before they can even go into training. But already we've lost, what, three, four fixtures this week? And especially yeah. at a time when they're playing every three days, every four days, this is just going to potentially throw the whole fixture list into turmoil. You know, there are 42 uh, this week, 42 players and staff, they don't discriminate there, who've tested Positive. And the facts, going back to my Rafa Benitez, the facts are that a while ago when we started ranting about this, 30% of the players had been vaccinated. They got it up to uh, 60% and then 69% by October. And I believe the figure is 81% have had a first dose. 81%. I personally think it's an irresponsible disgrace that in the very week that you've to attend a match, to watch these in very often overpaid prima donnas play, customers have to bring either a vaccine passport or a current lateral flow test. I, I think it's so insulting. They're, so they're still not all vaccinated, nowhere near at 81%, and infections are running rife. Yes, of course, I know they could be vaccinated and still be infectious. I know that. But I'll tell you something else. If you haven't been vaccinated at all, you increase those chances massively. So let's just be sensible about this. Games are being called off. As you said, United tonight, Spurs at weekend, Spurs during the week. Because, you know, teams can't feel they're depleted teams. So if you go to a game, you might see a, a team fielded just to get them on the field. So it's not, it's not what you're paying for. And I think it's a complete insult and a ridiculous situation to have got ourselves in. And why haven't some of the managers stood up like they have in America and said, if you don't get vaccinated, then you don't play in the team. Simple as that. None of them are brave enough to do that. I mean, I know people could say it's your choice to get vaccinated or not, and it is but then it should be the manager's choice whether he picks the player or not. And, uh, you know, and, and very much a case of, well, yeah, no jab, no play. I mean, we've started on a very negative tone on footing this week. <laughs> you and I ranting like two grumpy old men that we I are. No, but, but um, it, it, it's a gift that goes on giving, yeah. isn't it? So many of this last week. But, I mean, the flip side of that, the positives, I mean, I don't know if you saw, and it is a COVID-related story, where the Cardiff players had been caught in South Africa where the oh, yes. Omicron variant had sort of broken out and uh, Cardiff rugby players had to go into isolation on their return. 
it meant that there was some of their am- almost amateur players, the guys who were sort of playing, you know, for non-league clubs and working as sort of plumbers and postmen and all sorts a couple of years ago, actually got to run out in the Heineken Cup for Cardiff against, I think it was Toulouse this weekend. So fantastic opportunity for them. And, you know, great to see that the Heineken Cup is up and running, the European Cup in rugby, and there were some great games within that. I mean, uh, you know, Munster looked back to the old Munster strong, dominant up front. Uh, Quinns managed to get a late win away to Castra in France. Uh, Poor old Bath. Still can't get a win for love nor money. Uh, Leicester continued their unbeaten start to the season. So great to see European rugby back. And again, this weekend, we've got another round of European fixtures to look forward to. So uh, uplifting the mood slightly. I think that's a a positive. I was enjoying myself having a run. Anyway, uh, contacts. Uh, I've had a couple. Um, Craig Gillis, uh, in fact, was going to contribute to our uh, discussion last week on head injuries. He was just a little late submitting it, but it's very valid to read it. So if you'll bear with me, I'll read his very interesting words, because here's somebody, he's a former uh, Worcester. Was it Worcester Warriors? Yeah, Worcester Warriors. He was there for, I think, 15 years. Yeah, Uh, and he came through the sort of amateur into professional game didn't he really he came right through that so he's got a a lot of interesting points to raise here Uh, he says I was fairly fortunate I think personally not experiencing knocks that were diagnosed as as concussion I've never had a head injury that meant I had to leave the field of play and no mandatory periods out of action or anything like that he says that's not to say I didn't rattle myself on a number of times, definitely saw stars, little floating lights, or struggled even to recognise opposition players I'd already been playing against for for, uh, half the game. So in hindsight, some of these injuries were more than I ever let on. And traditionally, I think therein lies the problem. Many of the players of my generation would try and keep injuries low key, shake it off, and carry on playing. However, I'm of the opinion this isn't by any means the best way of dealing with these things. And the methods that are being put in place to protect players in a match, and indeed their long-term health, are absolutely vital. The game has evolved hugely since the inception of professionalism. Year on year, and now some 20 years on, Clubs have been digging deeper into what is to be, it is to be a professional athlete. Training methods, sports science, diet, supplements, rest, recovery have all led the players to being bigger, stronger, faster, more powerful, technically proficient in all areas of the game. The game itself has gone on evolving, becoming faster with more organised attacks and defences. The ball is in play longer and the frequency and magnitude of collisions has increased massively. Throw into the mix artificial surfaces. I feel the increased attention on head injuries is totally just and anything that can be done to protect players has to be done. It is always controversial when something like this potentially changes the shape of the game as we know it. And this, of course, upsets the rugby purists. 
and players from generations gone by argue quotes, well, it was all right in my day, or the game's gone soft. But as I've already alluded to, the game has already changed and evolved massively. Players' safety and well-being has to evolve as well. I think that's well written, Craig. Thank you very much indeed. And a very honest and insightful view as to the uh, a, a current, somebody who's retired, but looking at today's game through those eyes. I thought that was very valuable. Yeah, and I, I'd certainly agree with Craig's point. You know, if people, the traditionalists who, who want to say, oh, you know, the, the game is changing the game. I think the genie's already out of the bottle there in terms yeah. of the game has changed massively, as Craig says, through fitness, through diet, through being full-time professional. You know, you, I, I think I read somewhere that the British and Irish Lions tour this summer, um, of all the backs, and, you know, the backs were meant to be the lightweight, the, uh, yeah. the softies, the piano players in the team, the, uh, <laughs> the Wendy's, as I referred to them in my playing days, um, when they looked at the backs, the only two players on the 74 Invincibles tour of South Africa that would have been heavier than any of the backs were Willie John McBride, the captain and second row, and Gordon Brown, the Scottish second row. I mean, how can you have wingers and centres and scrum halves who are bigger and heavier than, um, you know, sort of forwards from uh, past era? That shows the change in the game. And I think, you know, Craig's absolutely right that, you know, if the game has changed and players have evolved, we need to look at the protocols and how we protect. And I think a lot of it, you know, certainly the people I've been talking to this week about last week's episode, a lot of the talk is about, and I think, you know, Luke said it, about protecting the players from themselves. Because quite often, as Craig says there, you know, people will want to play on, try to play on, and just got to be careful about how we protect them from themselves. Yeah, I think that was really insightful from Craig. Thank mm. you very much. And he's a friend of Null and Void anyway, but I think that was very valuable. The other person I had contact from, and it was about that edition, and you mentioned Luke, Luke Griggs, the um, deputy chief executive of Headway, Mike Dinsdale said of, of that episode, I have listened to your podcast on head injuries. It comes across as a well-balanced, particularly Luke Griggs declared change in his attitude and now his commitment in relation to concussion. He was certainly very gracious to those who have yet not realised that perhaps a more enlightened approach should prevail. Cheers, Mike. I think that's a very good point indeed. Yeah, and I, I think I'm not breaching any confidences by saying we had a really interesting chat with Luke for about 15, 20 minutes after the pod where it was clear that this is something that he's totally utterly committed to and passionate about. It wasn't just something that he was putting on for the the time on, on the pod, you know, something when we were talking to him afterwards, when we were off air, that passion, that commitment shone through. So, yeah, really good to have him on. And I think, you know, certainly as this story evolves, it would be great to speak to Luke again on, on some of these uh, some of these issues. Yeah, I was impressed with him. A really good guy and did a great job in representing Headway, I thought. OK, hey, it's my chance to have a rant again. <laughs> it's get a grip time. So we mentioned uh, the Champions League draw. Let me just go through it for those that are not fascinated by the detail. I'll give it you anyway. Basically, they're drawing out 16 balls, representing 16 teams in the last 16 of the Champions League. With me so far? Yeah. 
the teams from the same country can't be drawn against each other, all right? And teams that competed in the same group, in the group stages that preceded all of this, they can't play against each other either, okay? Now I think I'm following. All right, but <laughs> how, how they separate that out is they go into different bags to be drawn out. Now, bear in mind, UEFA are a massive organisation and they know in advance, three weeks in advance or whatever, they've got all the teams laid out. That's all they have to do, right, is draw them out properly. So to begin with, they had to stop because they found they were drawing out two teams that played in the same group. So they stalled. They go again, not being put off by their incompetence. They go again. And this time, the draw is made. And you think, hey, good, they've done their job. 90 minutes after that draw was made and publicised, I remember seeing it on my United feed, um, they say, oh, no, um, we got to completely redraw. We've got our technical issue beyond our control, of course, a technical issue. Well, I think the technical issue is their incompetence, but there you go. Um, so they then have to do the whole thing again. Bear in mind, the whole world has publicised that draw. They're saying, no, 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 come back in again. I mean, one team, Chelsea, drew the same team twice, Lille from France, who are probably the weakest team. So Chelsea have come out of it very nicely. But I think UEFA, bearing in mind the simplicity of that task, that's all they have to do, are pathetic. When you only have eight balls, eight, eight balls to draw out, you know, next time, which is the next draw, have a go at getting it right, will you? UEFA, get a Grip. <laughs> There's a joke there about UEFA in trouble with their balls, but I'm not going to mention it. I'm not going to make that joke. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't do that. I, I, anyway, it was nice to have another run, but it would yeah. be really <laughs> to lift the move again. Can you lift the move for us? I think I can um, by introducing uh, our guest this week. And he's a, uh, a very good friend of mine, um, Masood Golshani Shirazi. I actually met Masood in Dubai as he was a close friend of my then housemate. Him and his family adopted this waif and stray with their generous hospitality and warmth. And we became very good friends. I think his enthusiasm, his humor and his energy and everything he does are at such a level that he's the sort of person that the Energizer Bunny looks to for motivation and inspiration, <laughs> as well as being the adjunct professor at Leeds University and the MD of On Target Consultancy. He's also just co-authored a book, A to Z and Back Again, The Adventures and Misadventures in Talent World. So lots going on in his world at the moment. But where we've got him on today, one of the main reasons is that Masood is also a keen archer. He's going to talk to us about not only target archery, the sort of thing that we see at the Olympics. So Mike Smith, we're ticking off an Olympic <laughs> event here. Um, but also horseback archery and how that dates back to the Persian warriors that are very much from his heritage. So, Masu, great to see you and great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I was so interested in the head injuries because I'm sure that uh, my exuberant uh, enthusiasm is because I've been hit on the head way too many times. They dropped <laughs> from the horse on my head a few times and, um, you know, so many head injuries. It doesn't help that my head naturally looks like I'm already wearing a hard hat. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, some of us have got a bit of a barnet there to protect it, but you've got to, it's straight on to head on to the floor, isn't it? So <laughs> Totally, totally. Yeah. So that's, that's a, I, I, just to make you feel at home, and I know you know Andy so well, but new to me, as it were, one of my best friends is uh, a guy called Nasa Imadi, and he's Iranian, Persian, and he's a really good guy. And I, I kind of knew how you would be, even though I've only just made your acquaintance, <laughs> because you're so welcoming. And you're so, you, you know, when you've got, you made a friend of NASA, you made a friend for life kind of thing. You're so sociable. You love food. You love socializing. And I just welcome you on Null and Void. And the link there with me is that NASA is a really good friend of mine. And I'll definitely be sending him this episode to hear from you. Thank you very much. We do get around. Um, uh, me and my kind do do seem to be uh, in, in a lot of different circles. You know, we seem to fit in. And, you know, I don't know whether you know, but Iranians on the whole are very good at assimilation. Um, <laughs> we, we tend to fit. And, and you've done that a number of times, Masood. Is it? Uh, I, I was reading eight different countries that you've lived in and 23 that you've worked in in some shape or form. Yeah, and 65 that I've visited so far. But, uh, you know, Andy, I was talking to some of the students today uh, about global leadership. And, and, and quite frankly, I can't think of a better development or a better time to be had than go out there into the world and meet new people and new cultures and open yourself up to alternative ways of being and thinking and looking at the world. I mean, I just think it's absolutely vital. I mean, some of the narrow-mindedness i feel i i feel that they are people to be pitied because they haven't been exposed to the beauty of the diversity that's in the world today and and in all respects i think that's a positive thing to encourage for everyone uh, going forward uh, post covid hopefully um, the world will open up again yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure whether we'll run out of COVID first or run out of Greek letters first. <laughs> <laughs> either, either way, one day, hopefully, we'll, we'll all be able to, to do that again. So if, if we look at the archery, Masood, where yeah. did your interest in that sport develop? Well, I've always been interested in archery ever since I was a boy, making my own bows and playing with them. But uh, when I moved to Netherlands in 2006, I lived in a village called outside Beek in uh, uh, Limburg. And uh, this village was famous for archery and the only club in it was an archery club which had been around since the 1800s. And uh, so I decided to join. And quite frankly, it was a very local uh, club with all the local people and on the pictures on the wall were people's grandfathers and great-grandfathers and you had the old uh, grandfathers with their sons and daughters and their granddaughters and grandsons all shooting together in this family oriented and then I walked in um, this foreigner and clearly there wasn't even someone from the village down the road these were all local and here's an Iranian in the same way that Tony talks going in and sat there and just watched them and people of course ignored me and then <laughs> I went back again uh, it was every Tuesday and Thursday night and then I started having beer with this old man and he turned around to everyone and I said he drinks beer and I said hey he drinks beer you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> and then I kept going back. And then eventually one of the guys walked up to him and said, we've had a meeting about you. And we decided that um, it's okay for you to be a member. Here's a form and you know, pay, pay 50 quid and you're a member. And I got into archery in that way. And they were extremely kind and uh, teaching me. And it was Olympic style. So they sorted out for me to go to an archery shop and buy a bow that fitted my frame and my strength and my draw. And then they were showing me, you know, techniques and 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 how to do it. And, and uh, I had a house with 6,300 meter square garden. So I set up an archery piece, as they say, you know, a simple, and, and I was shooting every day and I fell madly in love with it. Um, and, and the interesting thing for me is, um, um, you know, the Zen aspect of it, the fact that, you know, you have to be calm and uh, so focused, but in, a, in an unfocused way, it's a very odd way to put it because, you know, you come away from work, you've got a million things running in your head. And of course, I would go into the garden to shoot. And the first few arrows, my mind would still be at work. And then as the arrows leave, my, my issues are leaving me and I'm relaxing. And as I relax, the arrows are getting closer and closer together and closer, closer to the gold. And, and I absolutely love that. Absolutely love that. I've gone through some major emotional breakthroughs in, in my life where, um, you know, with the help of some uh, friends, I was going through what was called the Breakthrough Program, actually, with um, Sally Jackson and Jan, her husband, uh, um, as part of my master NLP. And I remember offloading a lot of emotion at this program. And I'd taken my bow with me. And I went out after I'd offloaded the emotion. And I shot an arrow and it went straight to the gold. And then I shot another two arrows and I couldn't find them. And they had gone through the same hole. Oh, wow. And, and, and I hadn't been, I didn't aim. I didn't, I just let it flow and be natural. And this is the, where my love of archery came from. And I was talking to Andy Tony. I was saying mm -hmm. that um, I often think that there is a lot of similarity between archery and many other sports and one of the things that always comes into my head when i watch someone taking a kick penalty kick penalty kick exactly mm, yeah. is how they are relaxing you know with the pressure that there might be for that point and the, the shouting and other other people charging at them across the line once they uh, start running and i think to myself relaxing calming visualizing and then replicating excellence just practice and practice and then just do what comes naturally let your body and your mind do what it's designed to do and an archery is very much like that and 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 i i see a lot of similarities between that and and elements of rugby elements of golf elements of many other sports um and of course uh, when i moved from netherlands to turkey and i took up horse archery and traditional archery and, you know, um, instinctive archery, as I call it, is taking that um, factor and taking it to the next level yeah. and saying, if you watch an Olympic archer standing there, gauging the wind, gauging the distance, but really replicating exactly the same process mentally and physically mm -hmm. to replicate the results that they want again and again, that is a million miles away from real life. In real life, you know, if you were an archer in, in a traditional sense of the world, you know, archery has been around for between 38 to 40,000 years. 
Um, nobody stood around as shot. <laughs> you know, you were not standing on a flat ground. You were running around. You were maybe lying on your side. You were shooting up. You were shooting down. You were shooting a moving target. You were moving. They were moving. You know, it was all. And, and um, when you look at uh, the skill required to hit a moving target at, let's say, 35 meters, 40 meters, which is where an average deer would be, or, or even further, if you were in a war situation, uh, or you're on horseback and they're on horseback, you are moving, they're moving, the ground's moving, the wind is going on, and yet, and yet, your mind, without you being conscious of it, is making millions of calculations. That means that you hit the target. You hit the, the, the heart of the deer, so it drops dead and you can eat and your family are not hungry, or you stop that person who's coming to hurt you, whatever way, it's absolute magic. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting, the, the link was then, as you say, uh, and if you look at somebody like Ronaldo taking a penalty as he did the other day, and the process he goes through, and there's all commotion all around him, everybody's getting very excited, and he's calming himself with the breathing, he's, he, he goes through that routine. Uh, and, and the same with anybody at the top level, as you say, golf. We had, um, Andy Mayo said, we had Jane Story on. She, her first book was Breathe Golf. And I personally purchased that when I first met her the first time. And I thought, she is an absolute gem. We must, when we set this uh, uh, podcast up, we must get her as a guest. And she did a really good session, taking all those things on board that you said. Now, let me just lower the tone for a second, because one thing that is in my mind, and I have to say it, is if you are into archery in a big way, and potentially that's dangerous anyway, but you then put somebody on horseback, you must have, must have seen some spectacular accidents. <laughs> uh, uh, one quick story. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to train a particular horse um, for horse archery. And uh, horses need to get used to yeah. the, the sudden movement and the sound. And, you know, often the horses bolt. Um, and there was this Arab purebred called Elena that you just couldn't get used to it. Some other horses get used to it and you rub the, their skin with the bow and the arrow and you shoot them in front of it, their nose, under their nose, over their nose, over their necks. And eventually they get used to it. And that's fine. I mean, I, I've showed off polo ponies and polo ponies are used to it because they've got the mallet going past their heads all the yeah. time. So, yeah. you know, the, uh, not an issue there, but this horse kept bolting. So we decided that we were going to get it used to by taking the horse to a circus tent, which is completely round. And uh, so I would be on this horse and I'd shoot and the horse bolts. And of course, it's running in a circle. So I sit there and I just talk to it calmly. And I say, look, everything's OK. See, you know, the horse gets you used to. There's nothing wrong. Everything's all right. And I pretend you didn't bolt. You're running away, but you're taking me with you from what you perceive to be the danger, which is a good thing. But there was the metal pole holding up this huge tent. Right. And as I came round and I shot my second arrow, it hit the middle post, ricocheted, and went between my daughter's legs, who was standing in the doorway. <laughs> 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 it 
Can you imagine going home and having to explain that one? It was. Yeah. Andy, you, you know what? You know Bernos and you know Anahita. There was no explanation uh, that would have possibly sufficed. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Anahita is a, is an amazing horse rider, and uh, she also does horse archery uh, to a little bit uh, now. But nevertheless, there was no explaining it. Um, our, uh, bows are weapons, yeah, uh, and arrows are there um, like bullets, designed to pierce, uh, damage, and um, kill. Um, so, you know, you mustn't uh, take safety lightly in any way, shape or form. I am extremely careful um, um, with, with bows and arrows because what you don't want is any kind of accident to happen. And what you don't want is a result of that to be more legislation or anything else that impedes what is, after all, a very normally safe, normally calming uh, sport. And luckily, it's also a sport you can't get too old for. So, uh, you know, I intend to carry on um, uh, for a long while yet. Would the, I mean, you mentioned the, the, almost the power of the bow and the draw that you have on, on and different bows, different sizes have different draws. Masood, would that change as you get older, you know, sort of, or as someone's body shape changes, does that mean that the draw of the bow would need to change? Um, uh, honestly, it depends on the individual. What mm. I have found is because um, archery, if you, especially if you're not using good technique, uh, is asymmetrical, and therefore you could strain particular muscles. I mean, the the muscle at the back of your neck, if you're right-handed here, and certain back muscles is the ones that take most of the strain. Because if you're shooting a powerful bow and you're shooting instinctively, you're not using your bicep. You're using the technique, whether you use the Japanese or Mongolian technique or Hungarian or whatever. It's, it's a sort of mostly you want to be using your big back muscles rather than your arm muscles and using the technique to uh, draw. Um, the reality from historical bows, uh, like the ones that long bows they found on Mary Rose or some of the bows in museums from the Ottoman Empire, from the Persian Empire, from the Mongol period, is that the draw weights were massive. Absolutely massive. We're talking 150, 180 pound draw weight. Um, and, and, you know, my heaviest bow is 65. Yeah. And, so and that is the bow they... that most people find very difficult pulling. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I know you're, you're, you're a strong guy. And, you know, some of, some of the martial arts you've done and, and the strength you've developed through your life, you know, so a 65 pound bow, I remember having a go with it when we were in your garden in Dubai, and it, and it was tough. And I used to teach at the outdoor centre. I used yeah, to teach did. archery. And I sort of picked it up thinking, that, oh, yeah, I, I know what I'm doing. Oh, blimey, this is... So how on earth? I mean, if you go back, how on earth were they pulling a bow? It was well, like it, 180 it, it, pounds. It, frankly, you, they start training them from, from when they're toddlers. And, uh, you know, I mean, there is, of course, the classic um, rule that, you know, all men have to practice archery every Sunday, which was brought by the Tudors and, and for very good reason, because you know the, this is not a skill you could retrain in people and they could uh, pick up very quickly. It takes decades and decades for muscle memory, for uh, regular practice, for it to, and, and an average uh, Olympic archer normally practices with at least 300 arrows a day. Wow. Um, and, and you know, it has to, the muscle memory, it has to be second nature. 
Um, and, and therefore, it, that's the Zen bit. You're, you're shooting with your mind. You're not shooting with your eyes. Um, and, and, you know, you see the target and you hit the target. Um, I, I, do, I do quite a bit of visualizing. I, I sort of bring the target forward in my mind. I make it bigger. Uh, make the gold bigger. And, and it's, you know, anyway, other, other different people have different techniques. But, you know, you can actually practice and practice and practice with your mind and the body. And uh, again, you know, we're not in a situation where you need to be able to do archery in order to be able to feed yourself. Same way as we're not learning to ride horses because we need transport. Uh, you do those things to master yourself. It's the same reason for martial arts. You know, I, I don't remember the last time I got into a fight, actually two weeks ago on Sunday, but uh, on Saturday, <laughs> but don't, don't mention that. I avoided the fight, but almost. But, you know, you don't do martial arts to be a better fighter. You do it to master yourself, your mm -hmm. own fears, your own emotions. You know, the, the um, handshake between your subconscious mind and your conscious mind, between your physical self and your emotional self. And all of those things make you calm under pressure, makes you able to deliver results that you want in whatever field, whatever sport, in fact, I think, in my, in my opinion. Mm. Um, if you've got all kinds of things going on inside you, whether there is a mismatch between what your mind thinks it can do and what your body thinks it can do, whether you're emotionally not in the right state, then you're not going to perform. Then you're going to be battling yourself more than anyone else. Like you um, mentioned there, Masiad, about the visualization of the the target getting bigger and getting closer and the gold getting bigger. I've heard golfers sort of say the same thing about, you know, when they're they're there on the tee and when they're really in the zone and playing well, the, the fairway looks bigger, the, 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 the hole that they're aiming for looks bigger. And then the flip side of that, I remember Gavin Hastings talking about that kick that he famously <laughs> missed against England in the World Cup semi-final in the rugby and he talked about in his mind he could see the posts getting narrower, narrower and smaller so you know almost the flip side of that where the pressure got too much for him or you know whatever it was that mind whatever affected his mindset that day that mentality and, you know, what would now be, I think even then it would be a kick that probably 99 times out of 100 he would have kicked. Thankfully, he didn't that day and England made it through to the final, only to lose to Australia the following week. But, you know, his talk of seeing the post getting smaller, so as you say, that visualisation, you know, it sort of has a big impact both ways. Um, you know, I, I forget, I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of the uh i think it was a russian author and guy that looked at this mikhail is it sezaneski or something and his book flow and he talks about yeah, this the flow absolutely yeah, entirely i i 100 have experienced that and i mean look um in business in work where you get to a place where your competence your confidence and the challenge are right on the edge and you're achieving things that are just on the edge of your, and that's how you do the step-by-step -step improvement in, in what you do. Because uh, I experience this all the time myself. You, you're, you're shooting. And your mind, your subconscious mind, knows the normal level of performance that you are capable of. And you shoot a few really good shots. And they're all in the center of the gold. And your mind says to you, nah, you're not this good. You're not this good. And you miss the next few. It works the opposite way as well. You shoot some bad ones, 
And then your mind says, no, you're better than this. And it, your mind brings you back up to the level that your subconscious self has accepted as your current level of performance. What you want to do is to get into the flow. So you move to the edge and your mind can reset its standards. And it sets the standards at a higher level with a higher expectation. And that is what I meant when I said you shake hands with your subconscious self. Yeah. To quieten that inner voice that says, you can't do it. You're rubbish. Yeah. You're going to mess it up now. You know, watch this. You're going to be humiliated. Look at all the expectations over there. You know, you're going to disappoint them all. And that inner voice is in all of us because, you know, when you were kids, you heard it. You heard it from other people. You heard maybe from your parents or maybe not, maybe from uh, people, you, children you're playing with or whatever. And that inner voice, because we see ourselves often through the eyes of others, has stayed in you. And this is what I mean about that session that I had where I put a lot of those things away. I mean, you know, you're all, for the rest of our lives, we're always in the process of self-discovery. Exactly as Socrates says, get to know yourself. But there is the friendship with yourself. Get to know yourself, but like yourself. Get to, get to love yourself first because i don't think it's possible for you to love other people properly unless you are comfortable in the skin that you're in yourself and i think that's also true of sport that's also true of performance under pressure i mean some people do better under pressure because again that's part of the psyche their their mind says oh i always work better under pressure and and they do because they're self-fulfilling prophecy the, um, I, I refer to it as the rabbits out of hats time and uh yeah the number of times in my career even this week that i i'm pulling rabbits out of hats and i keep telling myself that lie oh i work better under the last minute pressure <laughs> <laughs> i've seen you under pressure and i think you're brilliant at it <laughs> yeah but no, what what's interesting about where this for me anyway because i've been in business as well and i'm mad about sports is i always tried to link the two things you've clearly done that on a massive scale so when you're talking to people do you use the archery or sport as a way of threading people through to how you should think under pressure in business is that what you do it's it's a, it's a metaphor that i i'm able to use because i'm an archer so, uh, you know, it's natural for me to use it as a metaphor. You could use other metaphors to illustrate the same point. But actually, uh, before COVID, I made four videos, um, two, less than two minutes, one and a half to two minutes each, to illustrate particular points using archery. So, um, you know, we're talking about uh, life now, not just business. The world is getting more uncertain. Look at COVID. Look at financial crisis. Look at all the different things that are happening. There's more complexity. There is more ambiguity. Small things are having massive impact. What that means is that you have to start performing on the hoof. You can't do what we uh, used to be done in the past, which is to plan things, build up your case, build up your way of doing things, and then execute. You have to go with the flow. And the normal uh, metaphor I use is that, you know, the target is moving, you are moving, but you still have to hit the target if you want to eat, if you want to be successful. So in the business, right, you're spending, and, and uh, let me just use a couple of these examples from my past. 
in a most big global conglomerates, you're spending three to four months of the year budgeting. It takes over everything. You're analyzing performance from last year, which is dead performance. It's not going to change. Makes no difference. But you analyze it to the upteenth degree. Then you make plans, which have to be justified in terms of the market, in terms of what that means in sales, in terms of production, in terms of what that means from a cost point of view, in terms of resources and capability, in terms of, therefore, recruitment, training, whatever else, from, from the HR point of view that Andy and I have been in. And within the first two or three months of any year, that plan is utterly obsolete because the currencies have changed, because the regulation has changed, because the competition framework has changed, because your plans were not based on the things that didn't come to fruition for whatever reason. Sales are up or down or whatever. And suddenly you're having to adjust them and adjust them and adjust them again. Now, planning is very useful because that means that you can adjust. But this idea of being able to hit your targets while they're moving, while they are, so this uh, um, illusion of control that you thought you had, you have to start enjoying the fact that we are performing without needing that control. Because mm -hmm. all you can actually control is what's inside you. You can't control anything else. Let's be blunt here. You think you're controlling the staff? Yeah. Go to the coffee break when you're not around, see what they're saying and what they're doing. <laughs> you think you can, you think your resources are to be dependent on, you know, you don't know what currency they are, what you don't even know if they're the right resources. It's all guesswork anyway. Um, until the rubber hits the mat, it's guesswork. At that point, it becomes real. Now, with that in mind, this whole concept of being in the flow and, and be true to yourself, play to your strength and constantly be on the floor, on the edge, visualizing yourself, pushing yourself to, to be better and better is great. And I use archery as a metaphor to illustrate that. But you could use rugby to illustrate that. I, I mean, I love rugby. I mean, this is what Andy and I used to sit around and watch or go to uh, rugby matches in, in Dubai. You know, uh, excellence in any field requires this handshake between you and your inner self. It's obvious, Masood, that you push yourself by the very definition of what you're talking about there, push yourself very hard. And as you advance in age, as we all do, of course, it, how you talked about, you know, stiffness and shoulders and back and so on. Do you use yoga and Pilates and stretching? You, you, I, 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 I stretch quite a bit. I, I mean, I go to martial arts twice a week and that clearly there's stretching that happens there. Um, but also because because I've had major hip injuries, the the um, physiotherapist has told me that I forever have to look after my neck and spine going forward. <laughs> so I I stretch it all the time just in case it ever becomes stiff. Um, you know, physical fitness. I think for me is a definition of uh, a combination. Sorry, of power, speed, flexibility, and endurance. And flexibility has to be part of it. Otherwise, you pull a muscle. I mean, you know, you could be as fast as you want, but if you run and suddenly you misstepped and, and you pull the groin muscle, that's you gone for six months. Um, you know, so uh, I think that balance. Uh, the key theme that I teach my talk to my students about is balance. It's all about balance. Um, maturity is about balance. Balance of your wants, balance of your expectations, balance of what you are able to do. 
uh, it's not all work. It's not all family. It's not all money. It's not all doing good. It's, you know, a little bit of everything so that, you know, you're in a proper ecologically positive place and you are happy within yourself. And that's, that's what, what life is all about. And it's not about getting anywhere or achieving anything. It's about enjoying the journey. And it's, it's, it's definitely obvious, Masood, that, you know, you, you do that. And I, I, I know, you know, some of the, uh, the journeys and adventures we've shared where there's been that, that huge enjoyment. But also in terms of, I, I love that, you know, that idea of using archery as a metaphor for, you know, the targets that we've got but the way of hitting them and the different ways of hitting them. And the fact that, you know, like you said, with the, the horseback archery, the targets will shift, the targets will change the, the world, the, the, the ground you're standing on shifting sands, but actually it's still about having that clear idea of what is it that I want to achieve and how am I going to, how am I going to do that? I'm very conscious that you have a martial art lesson to get to this <laughs> evening. Is it Wing Chun? Wing Chun. Yes, I, I, I did the taekwondo for 12 years one time and, and several years uh, in, my, in my 40s. But uh, now I'm, I'm learning something new. And it's wonderful because this particular one is about acceptance and about take, you know, taking the, the power rather, rather than and it's teaching me something new philosophically, not just, uh, you know, but that combination of physical and mental uh, is, is very important to me. So uh, I'm loving it. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, great to catch up with you, Masood, and thank you ever so much for sharing with us your passion about archery, but also how that applies and, and sort of some of the, the mindsets of, for a, a much wider but more uncertain world. So thank you ever so much, and um, we'll let pleasure. you get on to your, uh, your, your martial art lessons so and, you can and enjoy it, that. And, uh, my son and I, we're big fans of your program, doing a great job. Please carry on. Thank you very much, Masood. Lovely to meet you. Good to meet you. Bye-bye. Take care, mate, and I'll speak to you soon. Definitely. Cheers, Andy. Cheers. Wow. I tell you what, it's it's difficult to to think that each week we can better what we've done before, but, you know, the standard of our guests, you know, I know we're repeating ourselves, but Masood, he's a mate of yours. I've never spoken to him before, but what a lovely, lovely guy. And you could listen to him for for days and and obviously he lectures all the time but you can just see why he's so successful at what he does i really took to him yeah i think his students at leeds are very very lucky to have someone who is both so knowledgeable but also so uh enthusiastic and energetic and you know can bring so many different dimensions into play in the sessions that he's doing with them as part of their uh their MSc. So yeah, you know, really, really, I think a great fit for him there um, in terms of the role. But yeah, great to hear that. And uh, we can go back to Mike Smith as well and say we've ticked off another, we we stalled <laughs> for a bit on the Olympic, uh, Olympic challenge, but Masood has not only given us a really great discussion there and some great ideas, but also helped us tick off another of those Olympic sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no, very, very enjoyable. And what we did say at the start of this is that the F1 episode, we were going to explore in more detail later. Well, we've come to that time now, and we've had a number of people put their four pennyworth forward. And and uh, I've started, I'll start rolling, should I? Yeah? Um, yeah. Barry Wood was one of the first to put pen to paper. 
He said, the question for me is that, can Max Verstappen be considered a legitimate F1 world champion? But through no fault of his own, but through the protocols which were applied by the spur of the moment decision-making, how could a 12 second, 12, 14 second lead in lap 54 be translated into a 2.3 second lead at the end of the race for Max? Why not stop the race, restart the race for lap one and eliminating all the lap cars? Then the remaining cars would start with Hamilton returning his lead at the start of 12 seconds and other cars in their respective time positions relative to each other. The technology is in place as evidenced on TV screens to decide the time gaps in the first place. When the rewards are so great, we can no longer allow incompetent enthusiasts to ascend the greasy pole of sports legislation. Beautifully put. As Null and Void would say, get a grip, says Barry. Merry, <laughs> Christmas. Merry Christmas, Null and Voiders everywhere. Barry Wood, a Derby County optimist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, think, I think that's a great point. So, I mean, I, I've had contact from uh, Mark Brook, who was actually there. He, he'd gone over to visit his daughter in uh, Dubai, who's a friend of mine, um, Becky, that I used to work with out there. And Mark was visiting her, but he was actually went up to the race. And so um, a longer but very considered um, sort of missive. So I, I, if people will bear with me. I'll read it through. He said, uh, Hamilton was the form driver going into the Grand Prix, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, winning the previous three races. He looked comfortable in final practice and throughout qualifying, even though he didn't get pole for race day. His start was tremendous and took the lead from Verstappen going into turn one. We were sat on turn five with many of the Red Bull and Verstappen fans, so the atmosphere was great. Hamilton led through turn five easily, but Max tried to overtake on turn six, seven, forcing Lewis wide, although Lewis then regained track position. And I know that was one of the controversial sort of decisions. From there on, Hamilton looked comfortable and the Red Bull of Verstappen couldn't get anywhere near him. Verstappen pitted first and went on to hard compound tyres to be followed by Lewis doing the same. Lewis was in a commanding position throughout the race until the Latif incident around lap 50 of 58, when the race control deployed the safety car. Verstappen pitted for a third time, putting on soft tyres, losing track position to around eighth, as he cannot overtake when the safety car is on the track. The stewards then announced that all lapped cars could overtake the safety car as they planned to resume the race. Five cars did, three didn't. My understanding of the ruling is that all lap cars have to unload themselves effectively passing the safety car before it can leave the track and racing can resume. For some reason, the safety car left the track, giving an unfair advantage to the Red Bull team on new tyres. The race control was overheard to say they wanted a one-lap race, but commentary at the track where we were suggested the safety car would stay out until the end of the race and the race would conclude under safety car conditions, which would then give the win to Hamilton. In my opinion, the stewards made a right old mess of the finish. Hamilton was comfortable throughout the race. Red Bull needed a miracle, which Leif and Michael Massey, the chief steward, granted them. Total farce, in my opinion. Red Bull did not deserve to win the race in Abu Dhabi, 
Mercedes' strategy was spot on. The championship was gifted to Red Bull by significant errors in the application of the FIA's own rules. That's from one very peed off Lewis Hamilton fan is his comments. And then Merry Christmas to you and all of your listeners, Mark Brooks. So, Mark, thank you for that really considered and detailed review of how you saw it at the track side. And it just sort of beggars belief to me that, I mean, as a, as a non F1 fan, I got really drawn into it thinking this is going to be, you know, it's a big showdown. It's a championship decider. It drew me in. I got caught up in all the hype. I was listening to it in the car on the way back from visiting friends at the weekend. And I'm really exciting, you know, the driving by Hamilton at the start, then Perez trying to legally slow Hamilton down and doing a a really good job for his teammate. Really exciting. So you, you get all of this and you think, actually, this is a sport that I've been missing out on. Yeah. And then you end up with that end. And it's like, well, that, that was a bit bit something and nothing and a bit of a damp squib. And how on earth could that happen? Yeah, well, I think, you know, in just about any other sport, if you were that close to the finishing line and somebody says, we're just going to reconfigure things. You just, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. I was in the lead, you know, and I, I, and I was a bit like you because I've not w- watched F1 other than the highlights, you know, when people on the news or whatever, you know, Hamilton's won again and so on. But I thought, no, I'm going to watch this. Mm. And I watched it virtually, and it was to lap 74. I went through to the kitchen to say to Sue, Hamilton's in the lead. It looks like he's going to win uh, easily. (laughs) And I went back, and all hell was let loose. And I watched this unfold then. And again, I'm no expert. And a lot of people aren't experts in this who were drawn into it to say, this could be really interesting. And honestly, when I was watching the first 74 laps, I was really excited. It was a 58 lap race. Yeah, 54. Yeah. But but, um, to watch that race, as I did, I was a bit like when there was a tough football match. I was really excited. And I've, Mm -hmm. I've never had that feeling about F1 before virtually any time and and yet to then see it shredded in the way it was makes me feel and everybody's entitled to personal view i'm not going to watch any more f1 if that's the way they deal with somebody who i mean verstappen they didn't make any errors it went wasn't their errors you know mm. it was imposed upon them both but I think for Hamilton to have that eighth title denied in such a way, and I think he's been incredibly dignified, by the way, um, I, th- I think is absolutely awful and makes me think the wrong people are running that sport. So for me, I'm not going to watch it. I mean, I, 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 I feel exactly the same. But to give the counter of that, another friend of mine, Adam, got in touch and he said, I'm also new to F1. I know a little bit about it, but very rarely get to sit and watch a full race. The rivalry has drawn me in. And I think I'll be watching the whole season next year if it's anything like this. And he also adds, I think it's great that someone else is pushing Lewis harder than he's ever been pushed before. It's healthy for the sport. So there's just sort of like the flip side. And I yeah. think, you know, some people have been really drawn in by it and, and how it went. Some people have been turned off by the... Uh, the finish, but I think overall, I think everyone looked at it and said it was an unsatisfactory way because there will always be almost like an asterisk against that win to say, well, was it, wasn't it? The one thing I do hope 
and I know a couple of people I spoke to agreed with this, is I, I do hope that it's not settled in the courtroom because there were murmurings of it going to court and, you know, decisions. I always think that I, I would rather sport is decided in the arena by the players, by the teams, than by judges in a courtroom. So I, fingers crossed, whatever happens, I hope that we don't end up with it becoming the unedifying sort of debacle of it, it ending up in court. Yeah, um, you can argue it in a number of ways. I mean, in reality, if that's an opportunity that's open to Mercedes, why shouldn't they? You know, I, I believe Hamilton's not in favour of that, but mm. why shouldn't they pursue that? But it, it is a totally unsatisfactory conclusion, whichever the ultimate result. I mean, I had a, Mike Densdale actually said something about F1. He said, I'm not an expert. And in that one phrase, a lot of people have been drawn into this net and could, as I've said, end up saying, well, either that makes it interesting, I'll watch it now, or I just think that's a complete and utter farce. Uh, he, he said it, it seems the race official's choice of decision gave Verstappen the opportunity on a plate. That having happened, Red Bull couldn't afford not to take it, which is true, uh, but it wasn't a fair test to all that saw it. I'm not surprised Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes are aggrieved. You know, and it's another point of view. We had lows, and we'll conclude on that one, but the reality is, you know, that's not a satisfactory way to end a, a great battle through the season. And it just feels to me that the the rule makers are making it up on the hoof. It's almost like you're saying, right, you know, yeah. in, in rugby, okay, now we're not going to have scrums for the last five minutes of the game because, well, that's the way we're interpreting the laws. Or, you know, football, okay, you can you, you can score direct from, a, from an indirect free kick now because we've kind of interpreted the laws that way. So, um, yeah, just to me, I think that's the one. It's like, you know, surely there are laws that are set down and rules for any sport. And you kind of know those, you know, yeah, you, you have sort of, you know, in rugby, football, cricket, some really Byzantine laws, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, that you sort of never really understand until it happens or, or no one expects it to happen. You know, sort of, especially with cricket, some of the ones that uh, that crop up about the ball hitting the the fielding helmet or whatever, um, and the five extra runs on that, whatever it might be. Yeah, it's yeah. a case of sort of looking at it and saying, everyone knows those before we start, before we cross the whitewash. Surely there are the laws there, the rules there, and for any contingency, there's an interpretation of them rather than it being oh, we'll kind of do this, and then whoever moans the loudest on the comms radio, well, we'll change it. Because at one point they were saying overtaking cars, lapped cars, don't have to get out of the way. Then they do, then they don't. And, yeah, just sort of a real muddle and a hodgepodge. And I think, you know, if, if we hadn't had the uh, UEFA get a grip this week, I think uh, F1 could easily have been a get a grip. But I know we've turned our ire at them before, so we felt that it was a... UEFA's time, and let's face it, UEFA are big enough, ugly enough, and rich enough to uh to take it from us. <laughs> yeah, I, but, but I, you know, I think on the car radio right at the end, Hamilton summed it up. If you actually heard that, uh, we can apply a, a bleeper to it. But can you quote what he said? Andy? Yeah. Um. Well, I, I I don't know how to operate the bleep on the uh on the technology we're, so we're recording on. So uh, 
unbleeping believable. Uh, <laughs> I think was his uh, his um, it rhymed with unclucking believable. So. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I think that probably sums up the whole situation. And yeah. Hopefully we've done it justice tonight, but I'm sure you'll be telling us whether we have or we haven't next week. And thanks so, to everyone who got in touch with their thoughts, their comments, you know, from people who were actually there to people who have watched it, people who are very familiar with the sport to like us newbies, you know, everyone who's commented on it. And as I think you said to me earlier, Tony, you know, every conversation you've had today, people oh. are talking about the F1 because it is something that I think will rumble and people are still trying to work it out. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it just shows that sport does capture the imagination, whether it goes oh. well or whether it goes wrong. It's certainly something that gives everyone something to talk about. Yeah, and it's certainly given us something to talk about tonight, which is, <laughs> you know, another, I think, uh, excellent episode, and, and Masood has added massive weight to that as our guest tonight. Uh, so, as we all say at this point, if you've got comments at the end of this podcast, there's the contact details to, to listen out for, we really do value uh, your input, as Andy was just saying. We've had some great comments, and we're really uh, loving all of that. But same time next week, same place, maybe for you. Uh, you'll be with us, I hope. And, yeah, we, we really enjoy bringing this to you, this world of sport. Isn't it fascinating? Isn't it fascinating? Absolutely brilliant. So thanks ever so much, folks. And uh, we'll get in touch with you next week at a time and a place that suits you. So cheerio. See you later. Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan. Together, they don't add up to much. If you have a sports story, you can contact the team on nandv at forthenow.co.uk.